Hi folks, welcome to another edition of Gold Bazan. This is Pasha Hajion speaking, myself and Sinai Samia had an absolute pleasure of having Mr. Tom Gunderdon. He's your source for Portuguese football. He has this fantastic website called Portugal.net. It keeps you up to date with Portuguese football. He's been living in Lisbon since 1994. As you can imagine, he's your source um, to learn about Portuguese football. So we had the absolute honor to have him on. Uh, we learned a lot about, you know, um, our opponent, Portugal. He gave a great in-depth discussion about them, uh, what fans and, and pundits in Portugal think about Carlos Queiroz, what he thinks about Carlos Queiroz himself, what he's done with the reigning national team, his general thoughts on the reigning national team, and on Group B. So it was a great discussion uh, to familiarize not only Iranian fans um, with Group B, our Group B opponent in Portugal, but if anybody's interested in learning about Portuguese football, it was a great discussion overall. As always, we appreciate the support. All Tom's information will be on the website if anybody was interested to get in touch with him. But as always, thank you for the support, and we just want to thank Tom uh, for giving us his time today. As always, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Gold Bazan. Right now, I'm joined by Sina Saimian, our good friend Tom Gunder. Sina, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Pasha. It's good to speak to you. It's been a while, but uh, good to be good to be back with you. Thank you, Sina, and it's an absolute honor to have you, Tom. Thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to speaking to you about Portugal and just learn more about Portuguese football. Okay, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for your kind words. Uh, it's very very impressed with your pod, and it's uh, an honor to be on it. We appreciate that very much. So, my friend, Tom, the first question we have for you, if you could just speak to us about the qualification process for Portugal and the road to Russia. How did it play out for Portugal? Okay, yeah. Well, Portugal had an almost faultless uh, qualification campaign. Uh, they only lost one game, the very first game, against Switzerland. Uh, they won every single game after that, scored lots of goals. And uh, it, Switzerland also had a very impressive campaign which meant that it all came down to that final match, uh, which was in Lisbon, the return match uh, against Switzerland. And Portugal overcame them fairly easily, actually surprisingly easy, easily. Uh, they won 2-0 and uh, that saw them finish top of the group and qualify automatically for the Russia World Cup. So it was, all in all, a very impressive uh, qualification campaign. Uh, Fernando Santos, as the coach, has got an absolutely incredible record uh, in the qualifying matches. He's now overseen 17 as a Portugal coach, and he's won every single one of them apart from one. One defeat, 16 victories. So can't get much better than that. On the other hand, we can't really talk about the campaign without uh, having pointing out that it was a relatively weak group to be honest uh, apart from Switzerland who are a good team Hungary not not uh, I suppose not the worst team but again not even as strong as they were at Euro 2016 so although those results were very impressive uh, from Portugal uh, we can't really perhaps read too much into them simply because you know lots of those wins were against the likes of the Faroe Islands and uh you know, just, uh, just weak opposition all the way all the way around, really. 
So, uh, yeah, I'd say the, the mood in general ahead of the World Cup is fairly confident. Uh, it's an interesting draw. Of course, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yes. Uh, most people in Portugal think it's, uh, it's quite, I'd, I'd say, to be honest, they're quite pleased with the draw. Uh, Portugal have a tendency to get drawn in very tough groups and uh, they normally do quite well when that happens and on the occasions when they get drawn in very easy groups they tend to flop. Uh, this group I'd say is 50-50, you certainly can't consider it easy but uh, also perhaps it's not the hardest group so uh, let's see what happens. Tom, before we get into the gist of talking about Group B, now that Portugal won the European Championship in 2016, what would you say are the expectations from the fans, the media, the pundits? Well, it's an interesting question, because if you'd asked me that, I'd say one year ago, or even directly after Euro 2016, I think people would have been very confident. Why? Because Portugal obviously won that tournament, but they won it with a lot of very young players. Uh, players like Rafael Guerreiro, uh, Renato Sanchez, uh, João Mario, these players all started the final against France. And of course, the hope was logically that with two more years' experience, uh, they'd be even stronger and uh, add, add to the mix players who came in who didn't even go to Euro 2016, such as Andre Silva, the striker, and Bernardo Silva, the attacking midfielder at Manchester City. Things were really looking extremely rosy for Portugal. However, this season, everything that has happened this season has put a slight dampener on hopes. Uh, why? Because a lot of these players, a lot of the, uh, the players who Portuguese fans had very high hopes for, are, to be perfectly honest, are struggling badly at their clubs. So obviously this might impact negatively on Portugal's chances. Yeah, you've got to think you've got players like Andre Silva, who was superb during qualification. It's hardly getting a game uh, at AC Milan. Uh, even Bernardo Silva is one of Portugal's, uh, you know, probably some people say perhaps the biggest talent to come out of Portugal since Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, he is struggling really to play that regular football at Manchester City. Uh, he's played a bit more in recent weeks, but even so, that's a concern. You've got players like João Mario, who, again, at Inter Milan, is hardly getting a look in. And then you've got Renato Sanchez, for example, completely just fallen off the radar. And uh, even Renato Sanchez, who, when he burst alive in 2016, people thought this is a world star in the making. And, uh, you know, he's, he's done, he's, like I say, he's just completely, uh, his career has nosedived, so I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I'd be very surprised if he actually even makes the squad to the World Cup. So uh, I'd say that maybe the overall mood is Portugal uh, can make it a fairly decent run at the World Cup, but I don't think anyone is seriously thinking that they can win it. Um, Tom, looking back um, to the 2014 World Cup, it was a very disappointing campaign for Portugal. Um, went out in the group stages um, in a group that uh, most people would have thought uh, they have the capability to go through. Of course, the manager has changed since then and, you know, of course, won the European Championships and in 2015 as well, the under-21s uh, reached the final of the European Championships. Do you think that mix of experience of the older generation and, and, the, and the young blood that is coming through 
has helped the current team under Fernando Santos. And how do you think this team differs to the team that's played in the 2014 World Cup? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, you really hit the nail on the head there. It's, uh, Portugal have a very good mix. I think this was the secret of their success at 2016 and under Fernando Santos. They had a very good mix of you know experienced campaigners, players like uh, Ronaldo and uh, Pep, especially even Ricardo Carvalho was playing at the time, and uh, Jose Font, and then uh, João Moutinho, the midfielder. You know, kind of very. Uh, players who play in the top leagues or top clubs, everyone knows about. They've been around for years, and that uh, created very good chemistry with these up-and-coming young players. Uh, Portugal have really got a tremendously talented crop of uh, you know young generations and people. Even call it the second golden generation of Portugal after the, the players that emerged uh, at the at the end of the nineties, during the nineties and the early two thousands, like Luis Figo and Rui Costa and some people go as far as to say this new generation is Portugal's second golden generation. So it's obviously very important that they are uh, kind of mentored and guided uh, into, uh, you know, as they kind of acclimatise to top level football and to international football. Uh, 2014, you're right, it was an absolute disaster for Portugal. And really, one of the problems was these young players weren't coming through or weren't given a chance. The previous coach, Paulo Bento, was very uh, kind of set in his ways and stubborn, but always picked the same players, uh, very reluctant to pick new blood. And uh, even at that World Cup, it was uh, a complete and utter unmitigated disaster, mainly because Paulo Bento chose the same squad of players that that he'd used for the previous four years, even though most of them were either out of form or injured. Uh, I think in the final, for the final game, Portugal out of the 23-man squad, I think they just had about 14 or 15 big players. It was really that bad. So uh, Fernando Santos perhaps looking at that and uh, I think just taking a bit more of a sensible approach. He makes fitness and form uh, an absolute number one necessity when selecting the squad. And uh, he's also, I think, very fair-minded. He's been seen to be very fair-minded in his selection. Uh, he's not he's not afraid to mix up the squad, to change the squad if a player's, uh, you know, is, is emerging and is is really making an impact. He brings him into the squad if a player is struggling and uh, you know isn't playing for the for their club side. Generally, he doesn't consider them for the national team. So I'd say. Fernando Santos just completely freshened up Portugal and uh, in his first year in charge he actually picked 51 players, different players in that first calendar year in all the matches Portugal had which was like I say a complete contrast to the predecessor who who tended to choose the, the same players over and over again. Tom, you spoke about Bento and Santos. Obviously, right now we know Carlos Queiroz's his tenure at Iran has been just magnificent. How would you say his tenure was at Portugal? And obviously with the controversies that happened between him and Ronaldo in 2010, um, would you say the media and the fans or even whoever saw him as a success? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. He's just someone who he, he divides opinion quite a lot here in Portugal. Uh, first of all, 
I think everyone gives him credit. I just alluded to that first golden generation in the 90s. And that was really a lot of the credit for bringing through that generation goes directly to Carlos Queiroz. Uh, Portugal actually won the Youth World Cup, the Under-20 World Cup, twice running uh, at the end of the 80s, at the early 90s. And it was that team with Luis Figo and Rui Costa and Vitor Bahia and Jorge Costa, players like that. And it was Carlos Queiroz who really nurtured them and he kind of restructured the, just the, the whole way that Portugal uh, kind of gave best possible chance to their younger to their younger players to come through. So I think from that point of view, he's kind of universally acknowledged as having done a tremendous job at that time. As far as him being a first team coach, uh, I'd say, like I said, views are quite uh, divided. He hasn't been particularly successful here in Portugal. He was, uh, he was manager of Sporting and they had a very good team, uh, just failed to win the championship one year. Uh, that was, uh, I suppose, no, uh, no big deal considering that Sporting had generally struggled to win a championship between Benfica and Porto, who dominated. But like you said, that his last spell is probably what people most remember about him. Mm-hmm. Last spell as Portugal's head coach uh, for the 2000 and 10 World Cup and it, it all started quite well uh, of course he'd been assistant manager at Manchester United and is credited with helping make Ronaldo the player that he is so people were really expecting him to have great chemistry with Ronaldo but that didn't happen and that really highlights at least here in Portugal what's been one of his biggest criticisms he's he's, he's acknowledged as being an excellent tactical coach very well organised uh, very studious, but not really a very good man manager, and uh, and and actually t- to the point that he's seen as as quite a how can I put this as as someone who kind of arranges conflicts quite easily, too easily, and uh, he fell out with quite a lot of his players. Uh, for instance, at that 2010 World Cup, he fell out with Deco, uh, who was one of Portugal's. Although he's coming to the end of his career, you know, he was still one of Portugal's main players. He just completely fell out of him. And then at the end, he even, you know, kind of left on bad terms with Ronaldo himself. So, uh, but then on the other hand, I think people in general, uh, you, you can't really help to fail, to fail to be impressed by the job he's done at a series of countries, especially Iran, of course. People here in Portugal aren't blind. And uh, all his success at Iran, which has been considerable success, uh, is reported here in Portugal and is reported with quite a sense of pride. And so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say uh, he's not considered an elite coach and is not, he's probably if the, if the job for the, for instance, the Portugal job came up, he certainly wouldn't be on the list uh, in terms of popularity among most Portugal fans and probably at the, at the Football Federation himself because he, he managed to fall out with a lot of people there as well. But I think people in general recognise that he, you know, he is a, a football man with a, a, a lot to offer. And like I say, he's done a, a really uh, praiseworthy job uh, in the international arena, especially at Iran. Interesting points, Tom. Appreciate it. The next question we have for you is obviously looking at Group B, with Spain and Portugal being the favourites. And you have Iran and Morocco in that group. 
What are your general thoughts on Group B, and if you could give us a thoughts on how Portuguese media is rating um, countries such as Morocco and Iran? Yeah, well, it was. Uh, I was watching the draw live, of course, and when that first name came out, of course, I think everyone, all the first seeded teams, uh, their, their first preoccupation, uh, their first worry, their first concern was let's avoid Spain, and of course. The first uh, name out of the, that pop two was Spain, straight into Portugal's group. So that immediately, I suppose you could say, uh, set the set the heartbeats racing a little bit. Uh, then came Iran and Morocco, and I think, like I said, you certainly wouldn't put those teams in the category of the weakest team of the weakest teams at the tournament. Far from it. Uh, but uh, again. Uh, you know, with all due respect, not the strongest, and I think Portugal would be fairly confident of, uh, you know, getting positive results against both of them. Uh, the, I'd say the one big concern for Portugal is that they do tend to struggle against teams who are very strong defensively, you know, are very well organised defensively, and uh, well, to be perfectly honest, I, I, I wasn't too. Uh, familiar with Morocco and Iran, but I've been doing quite a lot of reading up and uh, research since. Of course, I've, I've listened to your pod, a uh, fantastic pod, and it, it seems really that they're precisely the, the kind of teams that Portugal historically struggle against, teams that are very difficult to break down, perhaps not so much of an attacking threat, but uh, teams who, you know, Portugal will find it difficult to make the breakthrough. A lot, of course, will... Uh, depend on what happens in that first game. Of course, it's very interesting that you, you mentioned that Portugal really crushed and burned at the last World Cup. Uh, so did Spain. And both of them had tough first games. Portugal were against Germany. Spain were against Holland. And both of them had an absolute disaster in that game. Portugal lost 4-0. Uh, Spain, I can't quite remember the result, but I think, was it 5? Five? 5-1 five, or something like that. They got absolutely trounced anyway by by Holland, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this, how both of them approach this game, because uh, I suppose looking at the group as a whole, you, you, you could argue that a draw would possibly be a good result for both of them, and then they they kind of uh, give themselves uh, they have enough faith in their ability to get the results they need for the next from the next two games. Uh, whereas both of them, given what what happened at the last World Cup, will be very keen to uh, you know avoid a you know a, a very negative first result. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's quite a cautious cagey game. Uh, but uh, of course, this is all ifs and buts. We don't know. Uh, you know, Spain might be on an on day, Portugal off, vice versa. If one team wins that game, it's going to I think make the rest of the the, the group very interesting because that will obviously open up a, a much better chance for Morocco and Iran, uh, especially if whoever wins that first game. And, uh, and so it's, uh, I'd say overall, people are fairly pleased with the draw, but uh, cautiously optimistic, certainly not. I mentioned before that historically Portugal tend to do well when they're in a very tough group, tend to do badly when they're in what's considered an easy group, like in 2014. This group is, like I said, it's 50-50, so let's see what happens. I'd be 
quite surprised if it doesn't really go down to, you know, right the last minutes of the last games. And I think it's going to be very tight indeed. Um, Tom, you set me up for my next question with, with your point uh, in regards to the very first game. And I was going to uh, refer again back to the 2014 World Cup and looking at the group and looking at the results, I think that first defeat against Germany really rattled Portugal, of course, and then the, the, the other results against Ghana and the United States didn't uh, necessarily help them in going to the next stage. It, it's a very similar it's a very similar order of, of games in this um, in this group as well. As you mentioned against Spain, the first game, considering the history you have with Spain um, again in, in 2010 World Cup, where they, they knocked Portugal out, as well as in 2012 Euros, um, do you think that that kind of history plays in their minds? And, and of course, on the other side, Iran and Morocco will be playing with a very similar mindset that one of them have to win if they are to stand any chance of uh, of going to the next round. How important is that game against Spain and how does history and, and, the, and the rivalry between the two nations play into that game? Yeah, yeah, perhaps that's a, it's a very good point because, uh, first of all, looking at the history, you're right, in, in recent encounters, uh, Spain have got the better. But overall, in the last, uh, say, maybe 15 years, Portugal haven't done too badly against Spain. And of course, we have to remember that during most of that time, Spain were by far and away the strongest international team in the world. Uh, you know, they just absolutely dominated, didn't they, for about eight years. Uh, but even during that time, uh, the 1-0 the, the defeat you, you mentioned uh, in South Africa, uh, you know, it's quite a close game. Uh, even though Portugal weren't really helped by like I said, a tactical approach by Carlos Queiroz. The game in 2012 uh, Euros, you could argue, was perhaps one of Spain's toughest games uh, in their six-year or eight-year spell of domination. Uh, they only got through on penalties at the end. And going back a little bit further, I think one of Portugal's most historic and uh, I suppose that one of the victories which is most fondly remembered by, Portu by Portuguese fans is a 2004 Euro, which Portugal hosted, of course, where they played Spain at the end of the group stage and um, at the end of the group stage where they needed to win. Basically, it was the winner who went through, the loser got knocked out and Portugal actually managed to beat Spain 1-0 in that game. Uh, that kind of set Portugal up for what ultimately turned out to be a very successful Euro 2004 uh, this game is different to those three in one very important respect. Uh, like you said, you just mentioned the match order. This game isn't decisive. All of those three games I just mentioned were absolutely decisive. Whoever lost was knocked out. Uh, this game isn't the case. Uh, so, I, and the fact it's the, it's the first game of the group, uh, you know, where I, I think both sides will be... Portugal certainly, I think, would be reasonably pleased with one point from this game. Uh, and so I, I really can't see, see that game being a gung-ho battle. I think maybe both of them will go for it for maybe the first 10 or 20 minutes. And if they don't get a breakthrough, uh, I think we might see you know, just uh, quite a slow-paced game for, uh, you know, for, the, for the rest of the time. Uh, it's interesting uh, that... 
I think it's very interesting, and I think it's perhaps to Portugal's advantage that uh, Morocco and Iran are playing each other first. In contrast, of course, both of those sides will have to go absolutely hell for leather for the victory because they know that uh, if they don't get victory in that game, it's going to be very tough uh, qualifying because they're, then they'll definitely probably have to beat uh, one of Portugal and, and uh, Spain, perhaps even get a, a victory and a draw. So, you know, that's a pretty tall order for, for any national side. So I think that could play to Portugal's advantage, perhaps, uh, in that they, uh, you know, by the time they meet uh, Morocco and Iraq, uh, perhaps they'll be a little bit fresher. Like I said, this is, this is all ifs and buts. Uh, but, and of course, I think that's uh, especially the case, perhaps, for the, for the final game, where uh, I think, again, it's very interesting listening to one of your previous pods and you were talking about Iran's participation in the 2014 World Cup where you said they put in so much effort and so much, uh, just so much of themselves physically in the first game or two. But by the time it came to the third one, they were just, uh, you know, completely out on their feet. And so uh, I think Portugal will uh, perhaps have to take advantage of that. Tom, could you give us a little bit of an insight about what, the media is saying about countries such as Morocco and Iran and, you know, pretty much these countries are pretty mysterious, you know, in the eyes of the Portuguese public. Yeah, well, like I say, there's a, there's a lot of respect for them. They know that, that they both had very impressive qualifying campaigns. Uh, for instance, Portugal played some recent friendlies against, uh, for instance, they played against Saudi Arabia, uh, one of their last friendlies. And, uh, I don't think there's any Saudi Arabia, of course, or are also at the World Cup. But uh, a lot of the commentators, they said immediately after the draw that the Saudi Arabia game was played just a few weeks before the World Cup draw. And a lot of the commentators were saying you can't really compare because Iran and Morocco are a lot, lot stronger than Saudi Arabia. Uh, Portugal won that friendly 3-0 and uh, it could have been 6 or 7. They just really absolutely uh, outclassed Saudi Arabia. But I think everyone recognises that that won't be the case at all uh, with Iran and Morocco. Uh, I think especially Iran, of course, there's the Kairos factor and the fact that he knows uh, the Portuguese players very well. He knows how they play. Perhaps he knows their weak points. He knows how to play on their on their nerves. Uh, and so I think you know, there's no doubt about it. They are players who are that they are teams who are very well respected. In terms of the individuals that make up the team, I think we just have to wait a little bit before uh, the Portuguese press, without doubt, will uh, you know, start looking at them from the individual points of view and seeing their, their, their strong points and uh, you know maybe going into a little bit more in-depth in their analysis of these teams. But in general, I'd say that uh, there's, there's no way, there's absolutely no way that Portugal will be taking them lightly they know that to, to beat them, they're probably going to have to play at their best. Um, Tom, certainly um, in terms of Portugal, when we when we talk about the Portuguese national team, uh, we cannot talk about we cannot uh, not bring up Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, some uh, people, yeah. of course, regard him as the best player in the world. Um, how how do you think Iran uh, can line up in order to stop him? 
of course, Iran did come close to uh, shutting uh, shutting out Messi for ninety odd minutes in the twenty fourteen World Cup. But how do you think they should line in order to um, uh, stop Ronaldo? And also at the other end, um, where do you think uh, Portugal's uh, defensive frailties are, and uh, how can Iran uh, expose those uh, those weaknesses? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, again a good question. I'd say. One thing which happened at Euro 16 and uh, immediately afterwards was, like I said, this group of emerging Portuguese uh, talents made it very difficult for teams uh, when playing against Portugal because they were less Portugal were less reliant on Ronaldo than they had been in the past. Uh, in really, for I'd say, for really most of uh, the previous decade. Uh, and since Ronaldo's been at the national team, it's you know people in Portugal get a bit annoyed when they when their national team is referred to as a one-man team. But looking at it uh, objectively, there were times and there were periods, substantial periods, when that really was the case. Uh, you know, Ronaldo, and certainly in terms of their attack and threat, it was basically Ronaldo. Uh, that's not the case now, or like I say, that shouldn't be the case now. If and it's a big if, uh, some of these talented young players like Andre Silva scored, uh, you know, no end of goals in qualification. Bernardo Silva, uh, João Mario, you got Gonzalo Guedes now at Valencia. Some of these really tremendously exciting and attacking uh, players who are, you know, very attacking in their own right. If they hit form, if they don't hit form. It's inevitable that Portugal will look to Ronaldo, especially, like I said, in games where uh, perhaps they're playing against a side who's set up very defensively. And of course, Ronaldo will be uh, will be looked at as the well, Portugal themselves will look to Ronaldo to, to try and help make the breakthrough. And uh, the reason I think Portugal struggled for some of those years when they were over reliant on Ronaldo. Was simply that the team, their opposition, uh, you know, doubled up on them, just double marked, double marked him. Uh, basically, uh, tried to cut the supply line to him. Uh, basically, just tried to take him out of the game as much as possible. And at that time, there wasn't really, the, the, you know, the rest of the team didn't offer as much as a threat uh, to to be able to compensate for that. And so, I think. More important than Ronaldo, uh, you know, getting back to scoring goals like he normally does, which I think is an inevitability. Uh, I think more in Portugal for Portugal's chances, and perhaps more dangerous for Portugal's opponents, is how uh, the the rest of the team, the rest of the team's main attacking players, how things pan out for them the second half of the season. Uh, as for the defence, okay, that's a very good question, and I think that's a definite potential weak point for Portugal, especially central defence. Uh, they still rely on Pep, who's uh, really a fantastic campaigner for Portugal, has been an absolutely brilliant servant for them. And he, although he's left Real Madrid, of course, he's now at Besiktas, uh, he still continues to be the main man for Portugal, uh, you know, the, the boss of that defence, really. And so it's absolutely vital that he is fit uh, for the World Cup of course, you know, he's getting on now. I think he's 34, 35. So he's had some, he's had his injury problems. So, you know, that's not a given. But I think if Pep were to miss or uh, the, the World Cup for any reason, 
that would be a huge, huge blow for Portugal, uh, especially because, like I said, uh, in central defence, that's one area where Portugal don't have an abundance of uh, up-and-coming players. Far from it. They really struggle to, to fill those spots with, with high-quality players at the same level as the rest of the team. Uh, there's still Pep's usual partners, are still José Font, who's, uh, of course, is an experienced English Premier League campaigner, uh, but he's really had his struggles the last couple of seasons. Doesn't quite seem to be the same player that he once was. And uh, the other uh, usual partner for Pep is Bruno Alves, who's 36. Uh, he plays for Rangers now in Scotland. And again, he hasn't had the best of seasons. He's had uh, some injury problems himself. So, as you can see, it's quite threadbare. Uh, then you're starting to look at other options, which are... Uh, which bring their own set of problems. There's a there's a very interesting young Portuguese centre back just emerging for uh, Benfica this season called Ruben Dias. He looks a good prospect, but he's very young. You know, I think he's only played about 20 senior games for Benfica, so it'd really be a huge risk to throw him into the World Cup. Uh, you know, at this stage, then you've got players, uh, one or two players, centre backs playing in La Liga at the kind of mid to lower level teams who are doing reasonably well like uh, Paulo Oliveira at Eibar especially uh, you've got a player called Edgar A at playing in France uh, for Lille and uh, these, are, these are all options but it's a little bit scraping the barrel to be honest so that's definitely a concern for Portugal they really need one Pep to be uh, fit uh, for the whole tournament and two, uh, probably they need uh, José Font to try and step up and uh, you know get back to the sort of form he showed at Euro 2016. Otherwise, uh, I think they could struggle in that department. Tom, feel free to ask me and Sina any question that you may have on Iran. Obviously, knowing you've been doing a lot of extensive research on Iran, could you tell us about maybe some things that you've realized about the Iranian national team, some positive, some negativities surrounding them, and if there's anything that you've seen that Carlos Kairos has done differently with the Iranian national team compared to his time with Portugal, if there's any positive or negatives in regards to that as well. Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating your interview with him. Congratulations for, uh, for arranging that interview and also for the actual interview itself. It was, you know, really interesting questions and really interesting answers, wasn't it? I think it... It's amazing how he he seems to have really put his whole body and soul into this job, hasn't he? He's completely yeah. restructured uh, restructured the Iranian football and uh, the you know the national team. And I thought it's fascinating the way that uh, he described that when at the last World Cup he was struggling basically to find twenty three players for the squad or high quality players for the squad. Uh, this time round is struggling to try and decide which high-quality players to leave out of the squad because there's, there's more than 23, you know, which is a, a, I think is a great testament to the work he's done and also to Iranian football in general. And it's also a warning to, to Portugal, uh, you know, to Portugal and the other teams in, in Group B that, that uh, you know, they're, they're definitely a, a team to be reckoned with. And I know just reading up, uh, to, to be honest, I haven't looked too in-depth at the individuals yet. I'm, I'm yet to do that. But just reading up on general uh, in in their, you know, what's going on in Iranian football, uh, one thing which strikes me is, is just the ambition. It seems like, you know, Iran, it's a, 
it's obviously a big country, a big population. It's kind of, uh, it seems like uh, it's, uh, you, you'll be able to tell me better than, than I know, but it seems like it's kind of Iran's aim to make themselves probably the strongest team in Asia or certainly one of the strongest teams in Asia. And uh, I think to, you know, the second World Cup in a row, I think uh, it seems that everything points towards Iran wanting to be in a regular presence every single World Cup. Uh, and so, you know, it seems that everything, everyone's pulling in the, in the same direction in, a, in uh, Iran, which again, you know, is always an, an excellent sign. Uh, you don't really see, uh, from what I've heard, you don't really hear any kind of discord, uh, certainly when it comes to the coach uh, or even the way things are being run in Iran, which uh, is really quite amazing <laughs> because, uh, as you know, Port uh, football is such a passionate sport and I think uh, international football, although people say that, you know, club football is, uh, is what rules nowadays in terms of money and, and everything. I think it's really what I think incites more passion than anything else is uh, the national team. And uh, I think that's why uh, almost every manager and federation, almost doesn't matter how well they're doing, uh, always gets uh, you know lots of criticism from left, right and centre, basically saying you should do this, you should do that differently. But the sense I get uh, from Iran is that really... It, it's, it's a country very much on an upward trajectory when it comes to football. I don't know, would you, uh, would you agree with that? For me, personally, Tom, it depends on who the Iranian Federation is going to sign for the next manager, but I'll be very interested to see what Sina has to say on this matter. No, I agree. I mean, uh, certainly since uh, Carlos Kerges took over, I think one of the things that I've always mentioned is that he's, um, generally speaking, he has increased the knowledge of the fans in terms of the tactical perspective of the game. I think certainly with the way that he lines up. Um, of course, he, ha he still has critics with the counter-attacking football that he plays, but I think before Kairish's arrival, um, um, the general uh, understanding of fans uh, about the tactical side of the game, I wouldn't say that it was that developed, but certainly since he took over and, and the way he plays and, and the way he even speaks when he's on TV about uh, how he plays and how he chooses plays, I think it certainly has been an education for the average fan in Iran. And I think that's, in my opinion, that's the legacy that he will leave uh, once he leaves, that he's introduced a, a different way of thinking, a different way of uh, playing football uh, to the average uh, football fan in Iran. Yeah, very interesting, yeah. And of course, t just tactically speaking, like I said, he's not, uh, he, you know, people do recognise here in Portugal, certainly from his time in Portugal, that he does have his faults. But I think in terms of his tactical knowledge, at least, uh, I don't think people would consider that one of his faults. You know, he is, uh, he does know how to organise a team uh, very well. Of course, he's credited a lot with uh, the success that uh, Manchester United had uh, when he was there as the assistant to uh, Alex Ferguson and especially the, the way that he got them to adopt different tactics and different tactical approaches. So, yeah, there's no doubt about it. And like I said, uh, you know, the fact that he knows Portugal's players inside out uh, will, you would, you would imagine, give him, you know, kind of the perfect platform to try and arrange a strategy, a strategy, uh, uh, you know, a tactical approach that will give Portugal problems. 
Um, just one last question for you, Tom. Um, what are the preparation plans for Portugal uh, in the next uh, few months ahead of the World Cup? What are the friendlies and the training camps that the Portuguese FA have, have arranged? Uh, yeah, okay. Well, the, they, they've arranged uh, their headquarters in, uh, in Russia, the, which is just outside Moscow. I think one of the advantages of uh, one of the advantages of Portugal's uh, group stage draw was of course Russia is such a massive country and a lot of people were worried about the amount of traveling that uh, you know that, that they that they will have to do and uh, I think because of the draw and the way the fixtures uh, the venues of the fixtures fall it's not it hasn't been uh, as bad as it could have been. Let's put it that way. So I think that will be, uh, you know, that's quite a plus point for Portugal. Uh, uh, as far as the friendlies go, they've got friendlies uh, lined up for March. Uh, I can't, off the top of my head, actually uh, remember exactly who the friendlies are against. Uh, I'm not sure if they've actually been. Uh, you know, completely defined yet as a, you know, in typical Portuguese style. Uh, they're probably being, uh, will only be scheduled towards, you know, more towards the, the actual tournament itself. Uh, and I think also Portugal were looking to see who they'd be drawn against to try and arrange opposition that would uh, play more or less the same kind of style that they think they'd probably encounter. So, uh, yeah, I think one thing about, if you look at the whole history of the Portuguese, uh, Stella Sound, the national football team, it's one big difference between Portugal, or you could say pre-2000 and post-2000, is precisely this, the way they prepare and the, radar, and the way they organise. Uh, it was a very kind of amateurist operation uh, in the past, and I think that's why we see a kind of clear turning point. Uh, if you look at Portuguese football history, uh, before the year 2000, Portugal didn't even qualify for most tournaments. Uh, since then, they haven't missed one. And they've, re they've gone very deep into you know, a lot of those tournaments, of course, culminating in the victory at Euro 2016. So if Portugal do well in Russia, uh, if they do badly in Russia, I don't think it will be because of uh, poor preparation. It's really uh, the only thing I can say about it at the moment. Tom, thank you so much for coming on Gold Bazan. The last thing we just wanted to ask you that if you could just tell the viewers um, some information for them to find you, what you do, obviously all your information will be on the website. Uh, okay, yeah, well, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for having you. I'm sure we'll be in touch in the next five months or so. Uh, and I look forward perhaps yes. to doing something reciprocal uh, on a pod. Uh, we're going to be starting... A series of pods uh, looking at their preparation to the World Cup as well. Uh, the site is called uh, portogold.net. That's www.portugal.net. Uh, that's just about all uh, aspects of Portuguese football. And of course, these next few months, we'll be uh, focusing a lot on the World Cup and uh, preparation. Uh, and then the associated Twitter account is uh, portogold one it's p-o-r-t-u-g-o-a-l one so uh you know anything i i kind of write or do or anything which is 
published on the site uh, is flagged up on that Twitter account. So uh, basically, uh, that's where you can keep up to date on Portuguese football. Tom, thank you so much for coming on Gold with Zan. For the viewers that are listening to this, definitely we'll have every information about Tom on our website and whatnot. Uh, Tom, absolute honor. Uh, it was just a great pleasure for me and Tina to have you on speaking to us today. Thank you. No problem. It's a pleasure. Speak again soon. Thank you.